morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. Welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream as well. I'm glad that you're with us. Take a second and fill out the uh, guest register at the end of your row, if you would, and uh, pass that down to the people sitting next to you so that they can fill it out as well. Go over a few things for today. Uh, one is uh, youth confirmation at 1145, right after uh, Bible study. New members class is tonight at six o'clock. Um, I, Mel's music concert is at four o'clock, uh, which is an advertisement for that as well at the high school. But if I'm not here, like at 5.45, don't leave uh, people in new members class. Uh, I'm not sure how long that will go, but I will be here at 6. And if it's going to be later than 6, I'll text you. But regardless, we'll still have new members class tonight. So uh, just be aware of that. Uh, men's Bible study on uh, Wednesday morning. We're getting ready to start a new study in a week or so on uh, Christian disciplines. If you want to be a part of that study on 6.30, uh, at 6.30 uh, Wednesday mornings, let me know and I will get you uh, the book for it. If, you've, if you're already in, for those of us who are already in the class, you don't need to tell me anything. I'll just go ahead and get you the book, assuming you're going to be back. But if you're new and you haven't been there yet, let me know and I will get you a copy of that. Uh, thanks to everybody who is out uh, Thursday evening for the vision event. I thought it was really, uh, it was a, a big crowd and it went really well. And there's a lot that's going to be coming out of that. Don't divorce yourself from the process if you haven't, are, if you haven't been involved yet. Uh, there was a ton of uh, survey responses too. So a bunch of people who did the survey couldn't be, or for whatever reason, weren't at the event on Thursday night. That's terrific. Keep that up. Uh, there's a lot of good things are going to come out of that. And then um, if I can do one more commercial before we start for adult Bible study. We're talking about um, uh, how to be Christians in our culture and uh, the goal is to understand the culture uh, with the purpose of being salt and light in the world. And, and let me just say this is that I, I know, uh, well, there's two, there's two kinds of bad teachers. Uh, one is somebody who doesn't know anything about the topic that they're talking about, but can talk to you. The, 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 you know, the, they're, they're good at communicating, but they don't know anything about the topic they're talking about. The other type of bad teacher, I guess there's more than two, but the other type of bad teacher is somebody who knows about the topic they're talking about, but can't talk to you about it. Or when they talk about it, it's confusing. And what we're doing right now in adult Bible study is learning the language of the culture so that we can talk about who we are as Christians. I know, because I hear a lot of you say this, there's a sense of like, wow, things are crazy out there. And did you hear so-and-so said this? And there's this sense that like, you know, the world's gone mad or whatever. And actually, it's probably more the case that we just don't know the language. And if we knew the language, not that stuff that you agree with, stuff that you disagree with, but if you knew the language, you would understand more why it is that people think the way they do and why it is that they talk the way they do. And because of that, you'd be able to communicate in a fresh way with them. So that's what we're doing downstairs. We talked about, uh, today we're going to start talking about postmodernism and what that means. So uh, join us after um, worship service for that. All right. I think that that's all that I have. Um, for the notices. Let's go ahead and stand and sing Mighty Fortress.
Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to you again. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We turn to you and to you alone to be our God, our only God. Forgive our sins, give us spiritual integrity, give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for he has promised to intercede for us. It is in him that we pray, in the fellowship of his body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Psalm for this morning is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Acts reading is from Acts uh, 6 and 7, and the Acts 6 part is about the calling of the deacons, and uh, the Acts 7 part is about the stoning of Stephen. And I have to point out something to you real quick here. In verse 2, this is on the second page in the, chap, in the, in the Acts 7 part, you'll see where Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me, and then there's the ellipsis. Well, that ellipsis is leaving out like 50 verses of the bulk of what um, Stephen is preaching about. Which it's, it's really unfortunate that that's left out because what he says here at the end doesn't make any sense without it. But I'm assuming that they did that for the sake of time, it's just to save us having to listen to 50 verses. Unfortunately, I'm going to sum it up for you. He basically just tells the story of Israel. He starts at Abraham, and he works all the way through the story of the Old Testament. And he's what he's saying is basically, here's where we're at, guys. This is where we came from, and here's where we're going Jesus is the, the capstone to the entire story of the Old Testament, and we killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And so if you believe in him, there's life and salvation, but if you don't believe in him, and then he goes into this second part here, which we'll get there in a second. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist, so uh, the non-Jewish members of the church, arose against the Hebrews, the Jewish members of the church, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, jumping forward to Acts chapter 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, uh, dot, dot, dot. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did, did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fell asleep is a, a Greek idiom for uh, die. It's a slang term for he died. Epistle reading, 1 Peter 2, 2 through 10. This is the sermon text for this morning as well. It's, it's kind of a difficult one. Like newborn infants, 
Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 14. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's together confess our Christian faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, 
and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. What tongue could tell my Savior's love? What song of angels could describe? Could endless praises be enough to echo for his sacrifice? How worthy is the Lamb of God beyond all might or skill of men? Still we confess and strange words such mystery and magnificence. My Savior's love, my Savior's love, what could compare, what tongue could tell, my Savior's love? My song of life has reached the end, though as a flower I may wilt, this everlasting truth will stand. No death or life could separate me from the love of Christ my Lord. This hope is sure from age to age, my song will be forevermore. If you could turn to 1 Peter 2, either in your Bibles or in the bulletin. And like I said when we read this a minute ago, this is a, uh, uh, it's kind of a convoluted text. 
Like on first reading, it just seems like kind of a, a mashup of religious language. And um, the reason why that is is because Peter is quoting or echoing a series of Old Testament texts, which we're not familiar with anymore because because uh, uh, we don't know the Old Testament like we should. Uh, but his early readers did. Peter definitely did. And so what I want to do this morning is basically what we're going to do is look at um, the text from the Old Testament that Peter's using and then try to piece them together to figure out what Peter's saying about Jesus and about us. So that's the goal this morning. Now, um, if you're looking at the reading here, the first two verses, verses two and three, are kind of a preface. And so let me talk about them first, and then we'll get into the bulk of it, which is four through 10. So in two and three, uh, uh, Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So long for the pure uh, pure spiritual milk. This is the only imperative verb in the entire letter of First Peter. And so this is obviously a very important. What Peter wants us to do is, he pulls out the, the, the imperative tense to emphasize, do this, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, a 30-second sidebar here. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you are gonna think in your head right now about Paul's comments in two of his letters where he says, you guys are kind of babies. You need to grow up and move past milk and start eating meat. Um, Peter's doing something different here. He's not talking about their maturity. He's talking about the way a baby craves its mother's milk. That's the way that we should crave God's word. Now, some, again, some of you might say, well, it doesn't say God's word. It just says pure spiritual milk. Unfortunately, if you're looking at the bulletin, you're not gonna see this. But in the verses right prior to this, at the end of chapter one, it's about God's word. I'll read them to you real quick. Um, Peter says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, uh, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. And then he goes into this section on uh, longing and desiring this pure spiritual milk. Spiritual uh, means uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. God wants us to long for his word. And I, and I could stand up here and I could say to you, we should all be in God's word. We should be reading the Bible, which of course is true. That would be a halfway decent thing for me to say to a Christian church. But actually what Peter is saying is long for it. Long for it, like the, 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 the craving that wakes your baby up in the middle of the night that says, I'm hungry, I need something right now. That's the way that we should be feeling about God's word. And when we don't, when we don't feed on God's word, we get in big trouble. So this is, it was designed to be the food that nourishes us and gives us strength. Angela and I had uh, friends, uh, this is uh, 20 years ago, and um, they had a baby before we did, and their, their firstborn son, it's always kind of rough, the firstborn kid's always kind of rough, you're trying to figure out what you're doing, especially if there's a fairly significant problem. Their firstborn son was clearly struggling and uh, didn't have the typical you know, baby fat face and cuteness, but was get skinny and getting skinnier and skinnier and like hollow cheeked and his eyes were sticking out. And when she would hold him, he wouldn't like move around. He would just kind of lay there limp. And uh, I, I didn't, it's not, none of my business, it's not, I would never say anything, but she had friends who were encouraging her, you need to take this baby 
to, to the hospital. There's something bad going on here. Well, she, she finally did, and it turns out the baby was not getting enough milk, not as much as the mother thought the baby was getting. And so they fixed it. They supplemented it, and, and then the baby survived. And I know me personally, and, and, from, and from talking to you guys too, I know this is the case, that a lot of times we're like that limp baby in its mother's arms, hollow-cheeked, bulging eyes, no strength at all. And the reason is, is a lot of times is because we're not feeding on God's word. We're not feeding on the sacrament. We're, 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 we've divorced ourselves from the food that can actually fill us. And so I'll think sometimes like, I don't know what's going on, what's wrong with me? Or sometimes I'll think, what's wrong with God? Like, where are you at? And those are not bad thoughts to think. Sometimes though, they can be dealt with by just eating right. By just eating right. By filling up on God's word. And I, I, I try to do this once every two months. A real explicit, uh, is this law? I don't think it's law any more than me telling you you need to breathe is law. It's just what you do if you want to stay alive. Like, we need to be in God's word. And if you aren't and you don't know how to do this, like talk to me. I can show you an easy way to be in God's word. But if you're not somebody who actually reads their Bible, you are going to be weak. And I'm not just mean like in a Christian sort of spiritual sense. Like you're gonna be weak psychologically and mentally and socially and emotionally. Feed on God's word. Again, I'm, I'm totally ready to help you. If it's, it's, I'm, look, I'm not perfect at being in God's word. I can help us do this, okay? So come and talk to me. There are also groups to do this in. Community group is a great way to do this. Men's Bible study is a great way to do this as well. Okay, uh, that was my commercial for that. So longing for God's word, longing for this milk, and then he's gonna go right into what this milk is. Now, what God's word does is tell us the story that Peter's about to tell us. And he's going to do this through Old Testament scripture. It, it, put your thinking caps on. I know I, some of you complain at me sometimes uh, that my sermons are uh, too complex. I know that's the case, and I know that 95% of the time it's because I'm bungling it and not explaining it well. Today, though, it's not my fault, I swear, it's Peter's fault, because this, this is definitely confusing. So we're gonna need to put our thinking caps on and think about what it is that makes this difficult. And the answer, like I said earlier, is because it's a series, it's a, it's a mixture of Old Testament text that we're no longer familiar with. And so you're left a little bit going like, what's that about? So Reeve and I were driving around, um, uh, so it's been a few months ago, I can't remember when, but we were driving around and we were listening um, to the 60s station on Sirius XM. And there was a song that they played by a group called The Four Preps. And I don't remember the name of the song, but I've seen it, I've seen it like on YouTube since then. It's a series of spoofs of songs that were like very, very popular in the early 1960s. I wanna say 1961. And they sing, they're singing these songs and each one is kind of a spoof of this song. And it's a live performance and the audience is just cracking up laughing. And Reeve and I are like, what's this about? Well, the reason why Reeve and I aren't laughing is because we don't know pop music from the early 1960s. You kind of have to be there to know what's being referenced. I'll give you another example. Um, so th this shows you like, e even from an early age, my parents were very, very proud of my intellectual abilities. So like, I, I used to like love Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, like the old ones. And there was one called, I had to look this up because I didn't remember the title. 
there was one called uh, Hollywood Steps Out. And I was reading about it this week. It's one of the most popular Looney Tunes. At the time, it was the, one of the most popular Looney Tunes uh, 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 cartoons that they had made. It doesn't have any of the usual characters in it that you're thinking of. What it is is a series of, of more than 40, like, movie stars from the time and music stars. And they, they all just get, like, a brief three or four second glance. And they do something that's supposedly funny or interesting. And it's all stuff about these movie stars. Like, Humphrey Bogart will be there, and they'll do some saying. And, like, you don't really get what it's about. Unless you're unless you grew up in the 1930s and 40s and you watched a lot of old movies and all of it makes sense. So these, these are things that we don't, we're not connected to anymore. So you watch it and it just, it doesn't make any sense at all. A lot of times, especially in sections like this of, 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 the, of, of the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament, it's like that, just because we don't know the Old Testament. So it's like listening to that four prep song. What we have to do is to go back and watch the YouTube videos of all the songs that the four preps are, are imitating. And, and, and we need to watch uh, Hollywood Steps Out and then go watch all the movies that each one of those movie stars made. And when we do that, we'll come to these, these cultural artifacts and they'll start to make sense. What we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at three cultural artifacts in the Old Testament that make sense of this section, okay? Now, there's one more uh, bonehead nerd thing and then we'll move on. A guy by the name of Richard Hayes, who teaches uh, New Testament at Duke University, wrote a book about 20 years ago called Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul. And the book is all about how New Testament writers use the Old Testament. And frequently, it's not even a quote. It's just an illusion. Like, a couple of words together will call to mind this Old Testament text. Now, one of the points he makes in there, which I think is very important, is this. Is that anytime you hear... Uh, sorry... Bonehead nerd language. You'll know what I mean when I explain it. Intertextual echoes. It will call to mind a whole story around that. Now, what an intertextual echo is, is, is this. For, forgive me for talking like that out loud in public. Is something like a quote or an illusion or a bit of music that reminds you of a whole story that connects to that little bit that that little bit can pull into the presence. So the, the, it, you don't even realize these when they're happening, right? So um, the phrase, leave the gun, take the cannolis. That's not just a phrase about munitions and delicious Italian dessert treats. It actually calls to mind, if you're a Godfather fan, a whole story, a whole long story, a whole way of living. Um, what's up, Doc? Speaking of Looney Tunes, I was just th thinking about that. That's not just a... a a, a weird question that you would ask Dr. Malcherik. It's it evokes this whole character, a whole series of characters, and a whole way of living. It evokes Brooklyn. It evokes sarcasm. Um, Harry is Harry's kind of into this, and he was he's been showing me a little bit of this. Um, the way that film composers compose scores for films. He was showing me this has uh, been a little bit ago. Um, whoever whoever scored Star Wars. Oh, it's John Williams. Oh, I just like committed uh, heresy in my house. It was John Williams. I was trying to think who it was. So John Williams scores Star Wars, and he has, if, if, if you know this, if you know it. There's different types of music that go with each character, right? 
And so an obvious one is, is uh, Darth Vader, right, with the, the dun, 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 dun. And so that's a music, and, and, and lots of times that music will be playing and Darth Vader will be there on screen. But one of the interesting things that the producers and the composer does is there will be a screen when Darth Vader isn't around at all, but there's something sort of sinister lurking in the background and there will be just a hint of that tune. And when you're watching the movie, you don't even realize it's happening, but it's pulling Darth Vader into that moment, even though, you know, he's whatever, a planet or so away. I don't know how that world works, but he's not even there. It will remind, these are intertextual echoes. And when Peter does this, he will quote a phrase. And if you don't know the echo, you're just like, well, why is he talking about rocks so much? What does that have to do with thing? What Peter is doing is he's calling this whole story that he's telling from the Old Testament into 1 Peter 2 in ways that he understands and his first readers for whom the Old Testament was their Bible. They would understand, but me, I don't read the Old Testament as much as I should, and so I'm like, what the heck's up with all these rocks that he's mentioning? Let's do that, okay? I'll try, I'll try, to, be, I'll try to be timely here. I know I just wasted a long time on introduction. But let's look at, there's three of them. There's more than three, but all we have time for is three here. Let's look at this, the, the whole stone and rock business. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then verses six, seven, and eight, he mentions stones as well. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Verse seven, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What's going on here? Well, Verses six and eight, the, the, the bit about the, uh, the cornerstone chosen and precious and the bit about the stone of stumbling echoes Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8. These are texts pulled from Isaiah 8 and 28, very close to each other. And what's going on in Isaiah 1 through 39, but specifically in Isaiah 8 and 28 is this. The Assyrians are bearing down on Jerusalem. They're going to attack Jerusalem. I won't tell you how it ends. You gotta go read Isaiah 38 through 40 and find out. Assyria is bearing down on Jerusalem, they're going to attack it. And God is telling, through his prophet Isaiah, God is telling his people, trust in me. I've got this. You're going to be okay because I am building this big rock that's going to protect you. It's going to be a fortress that will sustain you. And inside this rock, you won't be harmed. Now, if you don't believe in this, it's the kind of rock that could cause you to stumble. It's the kind of rock that could break you. But if you do believe this, if you come into the rock and trust in the rock, you'll be safe. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, so if, if, you're, if you're living in that day and, and Isaiah is talking about this rock, one of the things that you would think about immediately is the temple, which sits on the temple rock and is the highest point in the city of Jerusalem and definitely can function as a sort of a fortress. But Isaiah refers to the rock as a he, and now Peter is going back to this story and saying, Jesus is that rock. Jesus is that living stone. He's the new cornerstone. The other text that's being echoed here is um, Psalm 118. Now, I, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I went through a big Psalm 118 phase. I don't know if you remember this or not. It's about a year ago. I quoted Psalm 118 like in five sermons in a row. And then people were sick of it. So I said, no more Psalm 118 for a while. But I'm going to bring it back today because it's important. Actually, because it's important. And Peter alludes to it here. In verse, uh, um, uh, verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. That, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118. Now, what is Psalm 118 about? Give me, uh, hold on. Stay with me, and I'll pull it together in 30 seconds. 
Psalm 118 is about this, the new rebuilt temple. We're gonna go up into this new rebuilt temple that's going to be made and we're gonna worship God and God's gonna accept our sacrifices and we're gonna be safe and secure in the arms of our loving Father. That's, that's what Psalm 118 is about. And right in the middle of that is this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now what's going on here? Here's what's going on. God has promised to rebuild his temple, the kind of temple that his people will be safe in, that will protect them from their enemies. The kind of temple that if you don't come into, you're in big trouble. It will crush you, you will stumble upon this stone. But if you come into it, you will be protected. Now, when that temple is being made, the psalmist says, there will be a moment when a stone is needed for that temple. And a stone will be found and brought to the builders. And they will say, that stone's no good. That stone's lousy. Get rid of that stone. We don't need that stone for this temple. It's the stone the builders rejected. But near the end, when it's all coming together and they need one stone to hold the whole thing together, they need the, they need the keystone, they need the cornerstone, they will find to their surprise that this stone that they rejected fits perfectly in here and brings the whole temple together. Now, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where God dwells on earth. Jesus is the place where God reveals himself. Jesus is the place and the only place where God forgives sins. What better way to talk about Jesus than to call him the stone the builders rejected, which is now the cornerstone. He is the piece that his contemporaries said, we don't need that guy. That guy's lousy. Just get rid of him. Get rid of him. Crucify him. But at the end of the day, the temple can't be built without him. And to their surprise, the builders turn and find we actually need him. And now that he's here in the corner, the whole thing makes perfect sense. Jesus is that cornerstone. Now, why is this important? Being rejected, this is going to come into play in the rest of the text here. Being rejected is a part of what it means to be Jesus. Jesus is the man despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. It's a part of who Jesus is. Why is it a surprise to us that Jesus is the rejected one? It shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. Jesus has always been rejected. I mean, there are people who accept Jesus. There are people who know him and love him. But by and large, Jesus is the one that you don't need. Jesus is the one that's extraneous. There's a, a guy, an apologist I, I, I follow. He's a British guy uh, named Justin Brierley. Some of you might know who that is. Uh, he, uh, uh, um, there's this newsletter he sends out that, that I get via email, and he posted a picture he had got from uh, the British Secularist Society uh, the other day. And it was this call to join us, or at least send funds our way, because the coronation is happening. And there's going to be all this Christian imagery in the coronation of King Charles. And we have to fight against this. So it's, it's the same sense as like, well, Jesus, so we have a king. I don't know what the British secular society thinks about a king, but we have this king. But the whole Christian stuff is unnecessary. Why can't we just get rid of that? Some of those people will find, to their great surprise and relief at some point in the near future, that the Jesus they rejected is actually the Jesus they needed. We get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of, actually, let's just look at verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But you and I are Christ's temple. We are Jesus embodied. We are the temple of the living God. And when the world looks at us, rejected, more on that in the third point, we can be confident that it's okay. It's okay to be rejected. It's okay to sit off in the corner of the workyard for a little bit because at some point, we are going to be needed. At some point, the Christian church, the culture is going to realize 
this won't work without them. This won't work without Jesus. He is the cornerstone that's been accepted. Now, what does this have to do with us? If we are like the living stones, this has a lot to do with two things. First of all, our mission, and the second of all, our community, then we'll be finished. Our mission, first of all, back in verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are being built up as this spiritual house. He says, holy priesthood, which is an echo of Exodus 19. He does it more explicitly down in verse nine. Jump down to verse nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, that's an echo and a quote from Exodus 19. Israel has just been brought through the Red Sea into salvation. They're no longer slaves, but they are now a free nation. And God meets with them and says, let me tell you why I did that. I wasn't just being nice to you guys, although it's definitely nice. What I'm doing is I'm calling a new, fresh people for myself. People who are going to be my conduit to this creation. People who are gonna represent me to this creation. And so what he says in Exodus 19, this, this is the words of uh, God talking to Israel in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? If we are God's temple, that makes us, his people, a kingdom we rule and priest we represent. We rule over God's creation in his name and we represent God to the world around us. All too often the Christian church is like really horrible at this. All too often like we get engaged in the, with the so-called culture wars and think that it's our job to battle down the people around us, to silence them. And actually what our job is is to be priests, to be conduits of God's love and forgiveness and grace to them. And priests can't afford to be culture warriors. Priests have to be administers of forgiveness. Priests have to be filled with love. Priests have to represent not themselves and their own desires, but the God who they represent. Our main job is, well, it's really well, well described at the end of verse nine, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Talking and living like God is great. Proclaiming the excellencies of God. Talking and living like God is great. Like God forgives. Like God is all-powerful. That's what we're called to do. Christian church isn't called to be a private self-interest group. That's the other flip side of this. This is easy to do as well. We can either be cultural warriors. This, this is the tendencies of all of us. To either be culture warriors or to be like private. This is my own little private faith world. Uh, whatever goes on out there on Sunday mornings, I kind of like huddle up with my Christian people and I think Christian thoughts and sing Christian things. Maybe in the privacy of my own house, I'm a Christian, but then when I get out into the world, I can leave all that behind me and be secular. Both of those options are not what, what's being described either in Exodus 19 or in 1 Peter 2. We're called to be directly engaged. So come to Bible study here in a little bit. We keep, we'll, we'll talk more about this. We're called to be directly engaged as salt and light, as preservatives, as knowledge, as priests and rulers in the culture around us. And if we're not doing that, then we're not, being what, we're not, we're not on mission. 
Um, this is what Peter's calling the people to. One more thing and then we'll be done. This is related to Jesus being rejected. This, also has, to, this has to do with our community. Like Jesus, we are the rejected ones who have now found their place. We're the rejected ones who have now found their place. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This uh, it, uh, interesting text here that this is echoing. Hosea chapter two. Are you guys familiar with the story of Hosea? This is actually almost a direct quote from Hosea chapter two, verse 23. You can check it out later. I'll tell you the story of Hosea real quick here though. Hosea is a Jewish prophet. And Hosea is told by God that I want you to go marry a prostitute. I want you to go marry a prostitute. So Hosea is like, what the heck? He says, I'm not, you're gonna go marry this prostitute? And her name is Gomer too. So that's an unfortunate name for a girl. This prostitute, her name is Gomer. She's gonna cheat on you and I want you to stay faithful to her. So he tells her, you go marry this girl and she's gonna cheat on you. She has children and Hosea is like, they're not my kids. God says, we'll name them, they're not my kids. And so Hosea names one of his kids, this is not my kid. Loami, lo not my people. God tells Hosea, I want you to find out how much her prostitute services cost. I want you to take that amount of money and I want you to go and I want you to buy her and bring her back home. It's a horrible vocation. We think your job is bad. It's a horrible vocation. What is God doing? He's embodying in the life of Hosea this deep, ultimate reality that all of us are prostitutes. All of us are whores. We belong to God. He created us, A. B, he redeemed us. That means that we belong to him twice over and yet we continually cheat on him. We cheat on him with money, we cheat on him with power, we cheat on him with all different kinds of things. Cheat on him in a million different ways. And yet God, like Hosea, Hosea is like God, God consistently comes and brings us back to himself. Comes and takes what we've done and says, I forgive you, come back home, you're still my spouse. And in fact, he goes one up more than that. He says to Hosea, I want you to take those kids, I want you to take Loami, and I want you to change her name to, she is my people. And that's what Hosea 2.23, it's being echoed here, is what verse 10 is. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this gets right to the heart of one of the great postmodern epidemics, which is um, isolation, um, disenfranchisement, alienation. All of us know this. All of you, even if you have the most wonderful friend group in the world, even if your marriage is like this perfect marriage, even if like your like extended family is the most tight extended family in the world, all of us feel like we're out of place. All of us, every single one of us feels like we're not home quite yet. All of us, more at different times than, than, than at other times, feel like we're strangers in our own skin. Like, what am I doing here living in this house? What am I doing here with these, what am I doing at this job? All of us feel like this. This is alienation and we all struggle with it. There's a play, um, so it's, it's a particular postmodern problem too. There's a play written by a playwright named Samuel Beckett in the early 1960s uh, called Happy Days and illustrates this, this plight in, in, in a really kind of vivid way. There's, there's only two people in the play, a husband and a wife, and the wife is the main character and in, in, in the, at the start of the play, she's buried up to her waist in a mound. She's kind of trapped there and 
uh, she doesn't really say why she's trapped there, but she has this series of conversations with her husband. And they don't really talk to each other. They kind of, she, she kind of rambles on and says stuff. He will grunt words here and there. Every once in a while, he'll read a headline from a newspaper. But, but basically, the whole play, she's trapped, and they're talking past each other, and none of it makes any sense. And Beckett's saying, this is our lives. Like, it's just a series of conversations that aren't really connecting. We're all kind of alone in this world, a less highbrow but still, maybe even because it's less highbrow, uh, maybe even more excellent illustration of this is Seinfeld. You know, uh, there was, I saw this uh, uh, interview with Jerry Seinfeld while the show was happening, and the interviewer said something to him about being on a show, and like, what, is it, what, what does the show mean? And, you know, it's, it's you know, the whole joke about it. it's a show about nothing. But one thing is clear the interviewer says is you have these four friends who care about each other, and they're kind of living life. And Jerry Seinfeld stops her immediately and says, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know what show you're watching, but these four people clearly don't care about each other. They, 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 they lie to each other. They, they play jokes on each other. They abandon each other whenever they're in need. So Seinfeld is an excellent example of this sense of alienation. I was listening to a podcast recently where uh, this guy was talking about advertising. Advertising super interesting, by the way. I mean, I hate advertising, like watching advertising but the whole philosophy of advertising is super, super interesting. And he was talking about he was uh, driving in his car in the 1970s, and he pulled over. He had to pull over and stop because he heard this commercial, and it was a Dr. Pepper commercial, and the song, the, the, uh, if you were there, you'll remember it. The song was the Be a Pepper song. Uh, uh, I'm a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, etc. cetera. Uh, but for the first time, this, this person on the podcast said, I heard a commercial that was appealing to everybody's alienation as a sense that here's a product or a service that can fix your alienation. And, and this, Randy Newman wrote this song, and, and the, the first words of the song are, I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I used to be alone in a crowd, but something else is happening these days. There seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, etc. <laughs> I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I used to be alone in the crowd. What in the world does that have to do with Dr. Pepper? Well, nothing. But the advertisers know that if they can peel to your deep angst at being alone in this world, at being isolated in this world, about even if you like have the most passionate, intimate lover of all time, you will still feel trapped and lost inside your own skin and at odds with them. Dr. Pepper can fix that, people. You used to be alone, but now you have Dr. Pepper. Actually, what, what, what Peter is saying is this, is that the cure to alienation is he knows that we were once not a people. We were outsiders. We were strangers. We were foreigners, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We did not belong. The only cure for that is the one true family bound up in the one true human, Jesus Christ. The only cure for that is for Jesus himself to look at you and say, you, that's what he's saying right now to you, you are my people. You belong to me, and because of that, you belong to each other. Is it perfect? No. There's still that haze that's there. But we know that that haze, that isolation and alienation and disenfranchisement is not our ultimate reality. 
that being in Jesus Christ is our ultimate reality. So this is the milk that Peter wants us to constantly been feeding on. This story that God is going to build this new temple and come and live with his people and that we are gonna be included in the temple so that who Jesus is, we are, and that gives us hope and belonging and community in, in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in 1 Peter. In, in a very difficult text, I know, but that's what's going on in 1 Peter 2, um, uh, 2 through 10. So this morning, I'm appealing to you guys to believe this. This is your ultimate reality. You are living stones that God has stacked up and built into his house. We're connected to each other. Doesn't even need, uh, doesn't even need uh, mortar. We're connected to each other. The chief cornerstone is Jesus who calls us his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us your people. Help us to live in light of this reality. Help us to find our ultimate meaning and purpose in being your new temple and in being salt and light, being a manifestation of your glory to the world around us by being your temple. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.
Father, thank you for loving us and for being a good God to us. Thank you for uh, the promise of salvation that you've given to us in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you for uh, making us your people and your new temple, for building us up in yourself. Uh, Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, in your mercy. Father, there's... uh, for every single person in this room, there's at least five or six different concerns that are going on in our lives. We pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet each one of those according to your will and the physical problems that a lot of us are going through, pain, chronic pain and uh, sickness, uh, the financial problems that we're struggling with, that those who in here might be struggling with, uh, underemployment, unemployment. You know, there's lots of relational problems, God. There's Um, broken relationships. Some of us are sitting right on the edge of a relationship that's falling apart and slipping away and we don't even really know what to do about it or what we think about it. And a lot of us struggling with mental health issues, God, with uh, um, depression and anxiety and worry and thought patterns that keep cycling back over and over on themselves all the time. And whatever these problems are, Father, you, you know them and you are the great physician You are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can meet these needs. We pray that you would do it. We confess that we are powerless to fix our own problems. And we've tried to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and dig down deep and stick out a firm upper lip. And we just can't get it done. And Lord, we need you so badly to to rescue us. And we pray that you would do that. And specifically this morning, we want to pray that you would be with Deborah Harrington, a really good friend of the church who is uh, in the hospital and struggling right now, that you would give her hope and health and healing. We also pray that you would give hope and comfort to um, uh, Paul Melcherik's uh, family and the death of his father this week, uh, Gerhard Melcherik, and that you would just continue to give them the comfort of knowing that um, Paul's dad is safe and that his body is resting secure until the day when your son Jesus returns and raises it and makes it new and whole again and uh, we pray that you would bring about that day and that you would answer these requests, if not here and now, uh, in the moment that you would answer those on the resurrection day. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for the ministries that you've called our church to and uh, the things that you've empowered us and gifted us to do. And especially uh, thank you for the youth ministry that you've given us. And uh, that's actually kind of impersonal. I thank you for the kids that you've put in this church of all ages and Especially this morning, we think about our junior hires and our high school youth and the people that you've raised up to serve them, that you would bless all of them as they explore your word together, as they explore life together together, and that you'd be with uh, each one of them, raising them up into the vocation that you've called them to and equipping them to be good daughters and sons and uh, good friends and good, um, uh, good students and uh, good athletes and um, pray that you'd be with our leaders too, that, that you would give them the wisdom and the skill and, and, and the love and patience and the words to deal with them. And I thank you for Stacy and for KV and for Ruth and Michelle and William, and that you would continue to bless them in their ministry to our kids. I also pray that you'd be with the ministry at Mosaic and as they, as, uh, they fight for the lives of the unborn and uh, fight to serve and to love uh, women who are pregnant, that you would keep on equipping their needs um, um, financially, but also especially spiritually and emotionally and psychologically that you would uh, bring to their doors the women uh, that you want to go there and that 
you would allow us to, be, to have a role too in supporting them and in partnering with them. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you're such a good God and because you love us and because you've allowed us into your throne room as your children. And we confess that we can only pray these prayers by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we confess that we can pray these prayers only in the name of your son, Jesus. But because of that, we can pray these prayers to you as our Father. And so we pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly meet, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he has destroyed death, and by his rising again, he has restored us to everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, Jesus Christ, true Lamb of God, you
May this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Please stand to receive the benediction. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Come and join us uh, downstairs for adult Bible study. We are going to talk about the artwork of Andy Warhol, Bud Light advertising, not the recent one, uh, a past campaign, and uh, Disney princesses. 
And also, if that's not enough to attract you, we'll also talk about Jesus. Go in peace.